It's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting. Welcome to the Synergy Connection Show, where we connect the dots between our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual selves. You know, since March of this year, we've all been living in this COVID-19 world where our physical health of everyone has been front and center. And if you go to my actual website for the show, which is SynergyConnectionRadio.com, you're going to see a link for Boomers Forever Young. And this is a company that literally does produce world-class nutritional products that help all of us stay healthy. I have personally been using these products for the last three years. And one of their most important products is the Gladiator Barley, which assists in reducing inflammation throughout our bodies. And since inflammation is the source of all disease, finding ways to lower it is going to give you a much better chance to ward off any illness, including COVID-19. So just click on their banner and uh, you can go into their website. They have blogs, they have videos, and they have a ton of research on each and every product. And you can also sign up for their free newsletter, which I write for them. Um, The other thing that uh, would be helpful to know is that if you use my name, L-U-C-Y, in the promo code, you're going to get $5 off of each and every order. So having said that, I think the person I have as my guest today is going to help us understand COVID-19 and where we're going with maybe the um, virus as well as a vaccine in the future. So Arthur Wernick is a clinical pharmacist. He has his doctorate in clinical pharmacy and he assists individuals as well as families with understanding their medication and looking for ways to streamline them through medication management. You know that some people, you know, have 20 or 30 bottles, I think, of different things that they take. And so you want Arthur on your side to maybe reduce the number of bottles and to look at other ways to not have the conflict between medications that we sometimes have. So welcome back to the show, Arthur. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, it's fun having you because this is like like-minded people thinking along That's the right. same path. That's right. So today we're going to talk about what's on everybody's mind. I know the election is, you know, coming up very, very soon. And I think so many people are saying to themselves, are we ever going to be healthy enough to get back to a normal way of living? And so let's look at how your life has changed. You're helping families, you're helping individuals. And what has changed for you since COVID-19? Well, like everybody else, a lot has changed. As a clinical pharmacist, my area of expertise is medication therapy management. What I do is a complete analysis and assessment of a patient's entire medication use. I do this in coordination with their clinical conditions and their lifestyle so that I look at the whole patient and not just their medications. The typical patient that I work with has more than one clinical condition or disease state, often two, three, or more clinical conditions, takes multiple medications, and is usually under the care of more than one physician. And do they talk to each other? That's the thing we always try to get have Uh happen. Unfortunately, that doesn't always work as well as we would like to, but at the same time, that's the goal. We want to bring everybody under the same roof for at least a short time in order to look at the patient's conditions and the medications and make sure that we're optimizing everything that the patient needs. Right, and in today's world, and doctors are so busy, and with managed care, I imagine finding the time to coordinate that is tough. It is, I mean, we have goals. My goals for the patient, first of all, we wanna improve collaboration among pharmacists, doctors, and healthcare professionals. We wanna enhance communication between the patient and the healthcare team to make the patient more of a participant in their own health care. Mm-hmm. And my personal goal is that we want, I want to optimize the medication use for improved patient outcomes. And that very often means less medication and not more. And which I think is awesome because so many times, even if you're listening to the news, you know, tonight at 5 or 5.30 or 6 or 6.30, you know, that national news time, uh-huh. when you're listening to it, probably half of the ads are pharmaceutical ads and at least I I can't think of a single pharmaceutical ad that does not talk about 
you know, the 20 side effects that you don't want. Yeah, and that's important. That's part mm -hmm. of the requirement. They have right. to let people know. Right. And they seem to have a very nice technique of saying these side effects without sounding like they are potentially negative events. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. and they certainly mm -hmm. can be. I, when my husband was still alive, um, he was on a particular medication for a short period of time, which actually gave him Parkinson's disease. Unfortunately, that can happen. Yeah, Unfortunately, which is that, very that sad. That can happen, yeah. That's what we call a drug disease interaction. Mm. We have, uh, medications have side effects. Mm -hmm. There are drug-drug interactions where when you put two drugs together, it creates a result that would not be anticipated with either drug alone. And then, as you're talking about, we have what's called drug-disease interactions where medication therapy actually gives the impression that there's an additional clinical condition that the patient really doesn't have, but is an expression of the combination of medications that they're on. Right. He, he started shuffling like Parkinsonian uh -huh. patients. Mm -hmm. His hands would shake. Um, he yeah. had difficulty feeding mm -hmm. himself. Yeah. You know, and it was like, we knew instantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that particular side effect never totally yeah. went away. Yeah. And this is the difference now for myself as a practitioner and other healthcare practitioners when you really can't be with the patient. Normally in my practice, what I do when I do a complete medication review with the patient is that I sit with them for an hour. I do an intake interview. I get information and I listen and I listen. And getting to know the patient is very, very important. So I generally have a one hour live interview with the patient. I go back to my office, do my research. When I'm complete with the research and my reports are written, I return to the patient for another hour to present my results and have further discussion. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. I had in the past, on occasion, had to do remote consultations with patients. Now, almost all my work is remote, and it has changed the way things work. Fortunately for me, I had already done some of this in the past, so what I'm doing is just refining something I already had exposure to. Now, if you're using, let's say, Zoom, so that you can actually see your patient's face, because I would mm -hmm. think you'd want to see uh, the physical person, if you can't be it's with them. It's always ideal yeah. to be present right. in whatever way possible. So, yeah, because I, I, you know, I think when they're talking, you'll hear things for sure, but your eyes pick up little things, twitches, uh, droopy mouth, sure. um, you know, those kind of things that you can only see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to come across yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Hmm. So your, your practice has definitely changed by not being able to go into the home and maybe work with um, a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, you know, that the patient has been identified, but now you have families this, that are saying, we need to get together and figure this out. Yeah, and it's always ideal to have at least one other family member or caregiver as a participant because it kind of triangulates the information mm -hmm. between myself and the patient a caregiver or a family member and it's not always a verbal sharing of information I can understand when the family member is clear on what the patient is talking about or when it needs a little bit of clarification so I get to weigh information from more than one source and that's very very valuable so this is what we're all trying to do now is to try to catch up with the limitations that we have and maximize our practices based on the limitations that presently exist. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, hmm. What is the average age? Because I know that a lot of the listeners are going to be thinking, oh, this is for somebody that you know, is a senior citizen, but I don't think that's really true. No, it isn't really true. I've worked with people in their early 20s. I have certainly have worked with plenty of seniors, but there's a whole spectrum from young to senior that I've worked with. It depends on what's going on with the patient. There are people out there with significant clinical conditions that need attention. And there are many patients that are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that are taking 10 or 15 different medications every single day. Wow. that's It's unfortunately not that unusual. Right. And those are the very ones that are probably terrified of COVID-19. It is thought that if you have two or more clinical conditions, it is a risk factor. It's not proven, but as time is going on, we're starting to understand what are the risks of contracting the virus, and that is thought to possibly be one of them. Mm -hmm. 
So somebody, for instance, when I talk to individuals, you know, I tell them that the two tests that if they are getting ready to have a physical that are so important for them to know about are a D3, which basically is your immune system. If you do a D3 blood test, then you want your immune system to come back as a number above 70 because that means that you have a very good immune system working for you that'll help protect you. Uh, the other one is a C-reactive protein, which is your inflammation in your body. And we do know uh, clinically that almost all disease starts from inflammation someplace. Someplace in the body you have an area mm -hmm. that is inflamed and if you don't treat it, eventually a disease mm -hmm. will come from that area. So, um, you know, you're looking for a number with a C-reactive protein test of below one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very fortunate in that my immune level is at an 82 and my C-reactive protein number is a 0.3. Mm -hmm. So I have very little inflammation and a healthy immune mm -hmm. system, thank God. But if you don't know those numbers, then, um, you know, you just have to kind of take the best that you can, I guess, you know, to, to maintain just knowing that you need sunshine, mm -hmm. you need vitamin C, you need uh, vitamin D3, you need certain things to be taking along with maybe any other possible medications. So do you recommend that kind of a regimen for your um, clients that you see is to kind of help build them up a little bit and it's good to take a holistic approach to the patient whether healthy or whether with clinical conditions and of course my focus is medications but just like anything else a healthy lifestyle probably creates a healthier patient mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a healthy lifestyle means you know try to get reasonable sleep at a regular time because that's how we repair ourselves that's is, indeed is, the case yeah, yeah. Uh, eating a healthier diet than maybe Big Macs mm -hmm. um, and, you know, lattes that have a thousand calories. <laughs> um, doing reasonable exercise, which could just be walking, you know. The phrase I frequently use is to do as much exercise as you reasonably can. Mm -hmm. To set goals that you can actually reach. Because what's interesting about exercise, and it goes in increments and I have found that increments are about one week at a time so if you, you know people sometimes are a little less patient than that right but if you are to start a program with exercise that you know you can do and you do that for a week you find that after a week you can do a little bit more and what you now know you can do is more than what you could do a week ago right and that's how it goes with diet and that's how it goes with exercise Right. With diet, I am not a nutritionist. I am allied with nutritionists of many other healthcare professionals and practitioners. Among the nutritionists, they are the experts. But I can say to a patient, start by eating a little bit less of the same. Mm -hmm. Decide how much less of something you can eat, two or three different items, and then eventually decide, can I do without that item? But I believe that all changes to the diet should be gradual. Right. You don't reinvent the wheel overnight. A good example I've used many times from, I heard it from a pediatrician actually. And it was like this as far as uh, changing your diet slowly. If, if salt is in the recipe, use it. It's part of the recipe. If salt is on the table, don't. That's the kind of outlook, little by little. Mm -hmm. Half as much sugar in your coffee. Mm -hmm. Half as much of anything mm -hmm. to start with. And you find that you get used to it. And I'm, I am going to be a proponent of what people have heard before. The less salt and sugar you use on things, actually the better the food tastes. Right. I only use the Himalayan rock salt. Uh -huh. I won't use anything else. And it's certainly readily available. And a lot of people that are trying to maybe uh, reduce their calorie intake, if they go from their normal size plate to a smaller plate, Sure. You know, because it's a visual thing. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got just as much food, yeah. uh, it looks like, on the plate, mm -hmm. and yet there's probably a third less. Yeah. And so the body is going, oh, well, I've still got plenty mm -hmm. to eat. And mm -hmm. it, if you do it on a big plate, you see all that space, and it's yeah. like your body goes, right. wait a minute, I want yeah. more. <laughs> One of the best things we can do to begin consuming less food is to eat slower. It may mm -hmm. sound silly. It may sound trite. But it's true. Eating slower. Mm -hmm. Makes chewing. a difference. Chewing, chew your food, eat chewing, slower. Yeah, right. And it's healthier that way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, all right, so let's talk a little bit about this vaccine. Right. Um, we have AstraZeneca dropping out. We have Johnson & Johnson dropping out because of some side effects that they became aware of. And what are you sort of seeing in, in the research you're doing? Sure. Well, both of those are what's technically called on pause or on hold. Mm -hmm. uh, those have, both vaccines are on hold in the U.S. And let's see, the Johnson & Johnson one was really only, the testing only lasted about 19 days before it was on pause. Now, both of those vaccines that are being studied by those two companies have the same uh, method of working, the same what we call mechanism of action. They use a common cold virus to deliver part of the virus, part of the COVID virus into the cells in hopes of creating an immune response. So it's not a coincidence that both companies that are on hold are using a very similar technique to attempt to create a vaccine. People may have heard that this is the side effect had to do with some neurological problems that a patient had. The quote is that they were unexplained neurological symptoms, including change sensation and limb weakness. So they had some sort of numbness or paralysis. And that was from the patient that was in the AstraZeneca arm. Johnson & Johnson so far has not revealed any information about the patient that caused them to go on pause, not even to the point of explaining whether the patient was in the placebo group or in the group that got the test vaccine. Hmm. It would be seem obvious that if they were in the placebo group, there'd be no reason to stop the trials. Right. But they have not said, they have not expressed any transparency about that up until this time. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> when a person receives a vaccine, mm -hmm. what happens? You know, with them. I mean, they're they're going to. I, I'm not talking about the placebo group, but I mean, right now we are hearing that as soon as a vaccine becomes available, mm -hmm. everybody should call their doctors or go into the clinics and roll up their sleeves and get this vaccine. And I'm also thinking that um, the fact that we don't have any longitudinal studies about what this vaccine may or may not do to us six months, nine months, a year from now should be part of the evaluation. We have, this brings up two major issues. And one is people's acceptance of a vaccine and the other are the risks. And there's a lot to both. Let's look at acceptance first. Mm -hmm. Acceptance of a vaccine means confidence in the vaccine. Confidence in the vaccine is based on a few factors. One is safety. Another is the individual perception of the likelihood of contracting a vaccine preventable disease. How likely is it that if I get the vaccine, I won't get the disease? Another feature is the willingness to vaccinate based on the perception of a collective benefit that this will help all of us if we all get vaccinated. Now, the population has an interesting perception of benefits and risks. Benefits to the self and the population, benefits of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. The risk is perceived as only being to the self. That can be difficult for a person to accept. Right. It's difficult or impossible to measure the risk or benefit when there's no drug. We still don't have a vaccine, and we don't have a drug. Right. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. I really, I don't want to empty the bucket, so to speak, but until we have an actual vaccine or vaccines, we really have nothing to measure. Yeah, it's all hypothetical. Yeah. When we look at participation, which is going to be critical at whatever time we have vaccine or vaccines, let, let's do a little math. And this is only hypothetical, but there it's a realistic possibility. Let's say the vaccines are 75% effective, and that would be considered fairly good. Let's say that 75% of the population gets vaccinated. That would be considered fairly good. Well. The result is that only 56% of the population would be protected. That's not necessarily very good. Hmm. Hmm. No. And I don't know whether you're hearing this, but amongst my personal contacts, friends, acquaintances, I don't know of a single person 
that intends to take the vaccine because it seems like the more educated we are as a nation, the more we're going to ask questions and there aren't answers. And so unless we are fairly assured that we're not going to have neurological, cardio, you know, cardiac issues, um, you know, intestinal complications, until we sort of know that, we're not going to put ourselves at risk. So that goes back to that risk factor that you're talking about. Yeah, it absolutely does. First of all, we want to be sure that it's going to be effective. Now, in the short term, that can be hopefully determined. What does effective really mean? And on the face of it, it means immunity from the virus. If we dig a little deeper, it implies that you get the vaccine, you have antibodies from it, and the problem is that antibodies naturally tend to dissipate in the body, no matter what the virus is, yeah, no even matter the what the insult. Yeah. yeah, even the studies they've done so far right. have shown that, you know, if they test them like two months later, three yeah. months later, that the antibodies are going down. Right. That's normal. Yeah. What they have not understood yet, because this is still technically a new virus, that the antibodies may still provide protection even when they dissipate. And they're expected to provide protection. But until we have an actual vaccine, an actual drug, we don't know what kind of antibodies are required, what level of antibodies are required to protect ourselves. We don't know if it will be one shot required, whether it will be annual shots, or whether it will be two shots at a time. We don't know these things until we have a medication. The other problem is that people are concerned about long-term side effects of the vaccine. And I may say this more than once before we're through here today, but it takes at least six months to two years to even begin to get an idea of the long-term effects. There's no way to project that. We simply can't push the calendar on that kind of thing. Mm -mm. We have to wait until at least six months to two years has gone by for, to determine if there are any long-term side effects, which could have no relationship whatsoever to short-term effects. <clears throat> okay, so one of the things that I'm thinking, just from my own position here, is that if I were to take the vaccine, mm -hmm. knowing that my immune system is very healthy mm -hmm. and that my inflammation level is very low, I'm going to have a different reaction than somebody taking it that has health compromised issues. Correct. And so as they look at this longitudinal, you know, out six months to uh -huh. two years, like you uh -huh. say, that is going to skew everything, you know, because we have people taking the vaccine that may or may not know how healthy they are mm -hmm. and people taking it that do know, like I do, and mm -hmm. people that have been diagnosed with pre-existing conditions. And so I don't even know how they're going to figure that part out, let alone the fact that this is a virus that has already mutated. It started mutating in March, mm -hmm. and they knew that. Mm -hmm. And so the vaccine that they're creating now is for the mutated virus that they saw in March and April, mm -hmm. and that's not even the same virus that's out there today. Well, what's interesting is that the different properties of health that we have as individuals, that becomes pooled data. Now, I'm not an epidemiologist, but my fundamental understanding is that we're, we're a large population of people, millions of people are going to eventually probably have this vaccine. The data becomes pooled. We all, we all get mixed in mm -hmm. so that the, the statistics that start coming out are population data in general. It can't be broken down necessarily to the health of patients. We can break it down to ages, what ages are more likely to get the virus. Similarly, what ages are more likely to benefit or be harmed by a vaccine. And is the vaccine, I know that they have an increasing number of children that are now coming down with it uh, worldwide. Um, but I'm thinking also it's because, you know, a lot of these kids that weren't in schools are now going back to school. And so they're being exposed, you know, they're, mm -hmm. and so they're going to have more children, obviously, that will come down with it that will probably do just fine unless they have a pre-existing condition that they didn't know about or mm -hmm. maybe knew about. Yeah. And now the COVID-19 virus is compromising them to a greater degree. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's very possible. 
Uh, one thing that is becoming increasingly evident and is not exclusive to a new virus is that when there is a transmissible disease, whether it be bacterial or viral, people with weaker immune systems, with more clinical conditions, seem to be more likely to be able to get contract a mm -hmm. bacterial infection or a viral infection. That seems to be pretty clear. It's unlikely that this virus is going to show anything different from that. People with clinical conditions are probably more susceptible to all kinds of insults. Hmm. I saw something on the news the other day that I thought was super interesting. Um, they're doing some research with something that looks about the size of the little Echo devices, like Alexa. Uh -huh. um, and you put it on the wall, and they're very expensive. I think they were quoted as saying that it's going to be in the tens of thousands mm -hmm. of dollars. Mm -hmm. So hospitals will use them, maybe schools will use them, a nursing home certainly will use them. But it um, it kind of works based on a jellyfish. Did you yes, see I've this? Yes, I've heard this, yes. Okay, so um, it's like uh, whatever the jellyfish has in it, it kind of attracts the virus, uh -huh. and then it lights up yep. so that you can see, okay, it's linked to a virus. And that way they'll be able to control the viral environment of these institutions, mm -hmm. you know, where mm -hmm. there's many more uh, possibilities of contracting something. But I thought that was fascinating. So we have brilliant minds that are out there looking at, okay, what can I do in my arena of expertise mm -hmm. to begin to say, you know, we, we got caught with our pants down, so to speak. And so whether it's a grocery store that ran out of toilet paper and toweling, or whether it's a hospital that, you know, didn't realize that they couldn't handle mm -hmm. masses of people, mm -hmm. um, it's a wake-up call. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's, the, the, through our technological age, that the technology has always been ahead of our ability to utilize it mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a way that will benefit lots of people. But yeah, I understand that technology is effective. But to get it to be uh, cost-effective and mm -hmm. utilized widely is a very different story. It is a very different story. Wow. Okay, so what else are you finding? What else are we finding? There's a lot going on, I'll tell you. Uh, I think we could review the types of tests that are available okay. presently. So much of this information is fluid. So many things are changing. But the types of testing that are available now to people, there are basically two types of testing. One is viral testing, and one is antibody testing. Among the viral testing, there are two particular methods. One that people might be familiar with is called the molecular test, or so the PCR test. And that looks for genetic material, viral genetic material. And it indicates if you have a current infection. And that is the classic nasal swab one which is done. It can also be done with the throat swab, and now it can be done with saliva as well. And those results take a few days to get sometimes. The other viral test is the antigen test, and that also looks for different types of viral proteins. And that's what the one we may be familiar with called the rapid diagnostic test, where the results are available in an hour or less. Those are the ones that are being used at airports right now. Yes, yes they are. And the quicker the results, the potential for the higher level of false negatives. Mm. So you could get on an airplane and with somebody that had tested with a false report, uh -huh. and they would have it. Yeah, and that—that's you know this is the new frontier in testing. It's a new virus, and these these are new testings. The other type is called the antibody test that people may have heard about, and that indicates whether you have a past infection or not. That's done as a blood test. The thing is, it takes one or two weeks to develop antibodies once you have become infected, but mm -hmm. it's done as a blood test. Results are about the same. Results can come back in the same day. So those are the type of tests. There are numerous, the FDA has allowed almost every kind of test to be marketed. You can get saliva tests now and nasal swab tests. I'm not sure about nasal swab tests. Saliva tests are available all over the place, on the internet. You can go in and get them in stores. The FDA has not approved any of these. These are all under what they call emergency use. They're not really approved, vetted by the FDA the way a classic medical device or a drug would be. Hmm. But those are the options presently. 
You know what surprised me is I uh, typically will donate blood every maybe four to six months. And I've done this for years and years and years because so many people need, you know, blood donations. And what um, I'm finding is um, when I went in to do the last one, it, they actually did a COVID test. It, I mean, it was going to be done just standard. So they make sure that you're healthy, you know, in mm -hmm. giving the information or, you know, giving blood, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that your iron level is where it needs to be and all that kind of good stuff. But I was surprised that I actually could get a COVID test, and I had my results in, um, you know, like a day and a half. Yeah. And, uh, you know, was fortunate that, you know, I tested negative. That's the best thing to have happen. Yep, you it really is. a better outcome. It is, absolutely. Um, one of the things that, that I guess I also wanted to kind of look at is if somebody is going to take a vaccine you know I what are the considerations I guess that they need to have as they approach you know January February let's say that we have I don't know whether we're gonna have more than one company that will come up with a vaccine and your doctor will say well you can have the Merck one you can have this one uh -huh. or this one and they'll give you a choice or whether maybe that particular clinic will say this is the only one we have um but you know as you go in for your physicals mine's always in february so as you go in and you're considering a vaccine what are some things that maybe the person needs to give thought to well you've delineated a few of the higher points right there first of all a lot of it is going to depend on what's available mm -hmm. okay so i think we can presume that there'll be more than one vaccine available. And you'll get a choice as to which one? Uh, that's the second thing, <laughs> and you may not. It's most likely in the early going going to come down with what is available at the facility that you're being cared for. What do you think is going to be the price factor, too? Are they going to just say it's, it's something that we're going to give you for five bucks because we want everybody to take it? Or are some of the vaccines going to be, say, $100? and other vaccines be 25. Well, right now it appears, and th th this is a, uh, the, the pricing structure is evolving just as every other aspect of this is. Apparently now the federal government is funding the research and preparation of the vaccines, mm -hmm. but that's only the beginning of the chain, so to speak. Right. Uh, if the government funds the research and preparation and all these vaccines are ready to ship, there apparently would be costs to shipping the product, storing the product, and administering the product. Right. And it's completely unknown how that will evolve. And whether the insurance is going to cover it. And, and people that are on Medicare, for instance, and Medicaid, mm -hmm. um, you know, will they have access to this as easily as somebody who has, um, you know, like a PPO, for instance, or, you know, a standard insurance plan? That would be that would be ideal. People, the other s spectrum that I like to look at mm -hmm. is the level of health of our population. Mm -hmm. The less healthy people are, the more they will need it, regardless of right. wh what type of insurance they have. Right. That that level, that spectrum of people, is is critically important. So, how is that going to be determined? I mean, like if you are a person like your like the people that you see, you know, that mm -hmm. have maybe 20 medications, 15 mm -hmm. medications that they're taking. Mm -hmm. Are their names going to be sent to their doctors as potential candidates to take the vaccine? Like we want these people first because they have the highest health risk. Well, that's very possible. And the reason why is that health plan, this, this is all for better or for worse, but given <laughs> the situation that we're in right now, uh -huh. health plans are starting to recognize that their sicker patients cost them a lot more money, and they are starting to see that caring for them in a preventive manner is cost-effective for them. Right. So if the insurance plans are picking out their sickest patients, those are the ones, intellectually now, those are the ones that you would think the insurance plan would want to make sure are vaccinated because they're the highest risk. 
Now, from my point of view, they're the highest risk for health and well-being. The insurance plan, they're the highest risk because it will cost them more. Mm-hmm. If, they don't, mm-hmm. if they don't vaccinate, help these people become vaccinated easily and inexpensively or for no cost at all. They know now that it's going to cost them not even far down the road, very soon down the road. Right, right. So it's certainly in their interest. Too. I can't even fathom <clears throat> the amount of money that a lot of these patients that came down with needing to be intubated, needing to be in intensive care, you know, for not just a couple of days, but for weeks and weeks, you know, before they were discharged. And then all of the complications. I mean, you've seen it and I've seen it, complications mm-hmm. from COVID-19. Um, with young people as well as older people uh, that are having difficulty with balance, that are having difficulty with their memories, that are having uh, neuromuscular kinds of issues. So these individuals must have received bills in the mail mm-hmm. that are staggering, you know, that, that mm-hmm. they'll never, ever yeah. be well, able that, to that pay. Would beyond reason to be able to pay, certainly. Yeah. So that's... You know, that's another huge factor, I'm sure, because insurance companies um, didn't have to pay out, you know, the degree of money that the patient actually ended up with. Yeah, and that's only the beginning of the cascade, unfortunately. Uh, Recovering from this is one thing. The short-term and long-term effects could be quite another. Mm-hmm. And again, as new as the virus is, the long-term effects are going to be new. I said a few minutes ago, and I promised I'd bring it up again, that with the vaccine, you can't predict the long-term potential negative effects. I right. said it could be six months to two years. Mm-hmm. You can't push the calendar on that. Right. So we The have... virus is just like that. Right. We can't predict what the long-term effects of the virus are going to be until we get there. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where it gets interesting because we are now six or eight months down the road. And people are surfacing. We're starting to see this. Mm -hmm. Now, what we're starting to see is that, first of all, three months after a person has the infection and is recovered, and again, this all this information is variable because this is mm-hmm. a, we're, we're talking about a moving target. Right. We're, you know, we're we're driving you know a car with the wheels are shaking in a way. <laughs> three three months after one of them might be coming off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Three months after becoming affected, approximately fifty to eighty percent of patients have some bothersome symptoms. So just to be general and brief about it, bothersome symptoms come down to what you've probably heard and read about what people say they just don't feel right Mm -hmm. okay let's leave that there for a minute now six months after infection this is where that phrase long haulers comes in ah and that's a new phrase it's a new phrase six months later the long haulers come in six months after infection these folks have no detectable virus but they have significant symptoms and they're very similar which is what they're finding yes they have no energy, they have body aches, they're short of breath, their concentration is diminished, they're forgetful, they feel foggy, they have insomnia, and they can have headaches. It's not really known yet who is more likely to get these long-haul symptoms. What they're starting to see, and again, this is in evolution, they're just finding these things out six to eight months later, it seems to be patients more likely to get the long-haul symptoms who are over 50 years old, who have two or three chronic conditions, and who had a more severe form of COVID-19. As time goes on, that will be understood a little bit better. This is the initial information, and everything is subject to change. The causes of that, why is that happening to patients, again, is evolving. These are probably three clinical-sounding reasons, but they're, the, they're actually very, they're fairly nonspecific, but it's what they're seeing so far. They see continued low levels of inflammation in the brain. They're seeing decreased blood flow to the brain. 
and it happens, it seems to happen more often with patients that already have some form of an autoimmune disease. Now, let's talk about autoimmune disease for just a second because I think a lot of people don't quite understand what that means. Yeah, an autoimmune disease simply means that the body begins to attack itself and causes disease. So instead of protecting ourselves, the protective mechanisms of the body begin to attack the body. What's probably one of the most common ones that you've worked with? Skin reactions, uh, inflammatory arthritis, Mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. So the things that are supposed to protect us go against us. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't a cure. No, there's many medications for autoimmune disorders that are designed to try to forestall the progression of symptoms. Uh, A lot of the skin problems can be reversed with the proper treatments. Like, uh, I think um, Mickelson, uh, the golfer, Uh I think he um, has said, you know, for years now that he has psoriatic uh, arthritis. Uh So psoriasis um, itself is an autoimmune disease coupled with arthritis in his Mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that is interesting, people talk about boosting your immune system, protecting your immune Mm -hmm. system. Depending on the type of clinical condition, there are certain autoimmune diseases where you really don't want to supplement the immune system. Because it's going to increase the attack. Yeah, the logic (laughs) is that the immune system is not working properly now, Mm -hmm. and the idea is that you don't want to add fuel to the fire. Right. That's not necessarily a hard and fast idea, but there are many, many intelligent researchers that feel that adding Mm -hmm. to the immune system may add to the problem. What a a terrible dilemma, though, because, you know, if you're suppressing the immune system, you could end up with other complications. Certainly. And so, you know, it's like the devil's in the decision there. Sure. It's a delicate balancing act, and that's Mm -hmm. why autoimmune disorders are so severe for patients. Wow. Wow. All right. So let's continue with this. So you've got complications with people that um, are going to emerge, they're beginning to emerge, Um, we're six months into it, eight months into it for some people, and so where do we go, you know, with with these symptoms? I I am aware, and I'm sure you are too, that there are very few physicians that have been trained to help these individuals, because this is such a new situation. Definitely. And so some of them are doing virtual conference calls with their patients that are now scattered all over the world. Because Mm -hmm. if you went into your doctor with these symptoms, your doctor would go, I'm not qualified, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to send you to this doctor. And Mm -hmm. now there's a waiting list with these specialized clinics that are in different parts of the United States and Mm -hmm. world for patients to go in and work with doctors who are just specializing in this type of problem. And treating the mm-hmm. after effects. Right, yeah. right. And this, again, this is all brand new. This, you know, it's funny. Perspective helps sometimes. Back in February and March, when things were looking kind of unusual, things don't look right, <laughs> and people started talking about maybe having to sequester, have a lockdown of some sort. Mm-hmm. And people started thinking, Oh, this could be a month or so. And I was asked by a couple of people who thought I might know. They said, what do you think is going to happen? I said, I think we're in it for a month. And then I said, but wait. And I would say, that, but it could be two. And people looked at me, two months, you have to be nuts. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah, almost eight months later. Mm-hmm. So the, when, when we talk about physicians trying to help people with uh, symptoms and long-term effects that are unanticipated, they're almost as much in the dark mm-hmm. as we are. Mm-hmm. There are people that uh, take autoimmune medications for different things where it was called modulating the immune system, trying to temper the immune system so it does no longer attack the body. Mm-hmm. They're in a quandary now because taking medications that may modulate or reduce your immunity, as you said a moment ago, 
can increase your risk of mm-hmm. ha- getting serious infection. Mm-hmm. So the question is, when is it okay to take the medications? When is it not? And physicians are trying to determine, do I stop my patients from taking those medications? When should I stop them? When should I put them back on again? Mm-hmm. One of the things they're focusing on is called the positivity rate. So if you live in an area that has a certain level of positivity to the testing, you know, how many, what's the, in Florida, the positivity rate is published by the state is about four to 5%. Uh, Johns Hopkins says that the positivity rate in Florida is 10%. Wow. The doctors are trying to determine at what level do you begin therapy again? And they're looking at the positivity rate being maybe in the, one group will say, when the positivity rate in your area is below 3% for two weeks or for a month, mm-hmm. it's okay. This is new territory. It is. And they're trying to use best judgment based on tremendous education, unbelievable amounts of experience. We're talking about you know physicians and practitioners that see hundreds and thousands of patients. Right. How do we apply the new unknowns right. to what they know so well about? Right, right. Because it's all changing. Yeah. Everything is changing. Now, why is it that uh, John Hopkins has Florida at such a high positivity rate at 10%? I can understand why Florida is, you know, downplaying it, but why would John Hopkins have us so high? Uh, I, I would, first of all, say that it's a difference in how they're assessing their data. Okay, and how uh, are they? How are they mixing it up, and how are they determining what can, constitutes positive cases, what constitutes numbers of people tested? Are you counting people that are also getting a second test or are you only counting people that are getting a first test? Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's different components in the formula. You'll naturally get different results okay. when you do the so math, so to speak. It's kind of like um, your one-on-one statistics class. You can skew it any way you yeah. want. And, and skew order. is not a bad word. Skew just means <laughs> that something has changed. Right, you know? right. <laughs> I, I want to, uh, I think we need to talk about mutations because yes, you mentioned we that. Do. We and do. I think it's important because there's perspective here. Mm-hmm. Again, there is not a great deal of definitive information, but there is some perspective we can offer. Okay. And I think that that's important. I would like to say that, first of all, to keep it simple, a mutation is technically defined as a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay? Period. A difference. Now, mutations and viruses are not uncommon. COVID-19, its genetic code is composed of 20,000 characters. Wow, (laughs) that's a bunch. Now, according to the definitions, one single character change is defined as a mutation across the board. Now, there have been over 100,000 COVID-19 viruses individually sequenced to date. Out of those 100,000, they have found 13,000 mutations. These 13,000 mutations have an average of 10 character changes per virus. Okay, so given that there were 20,000 characters in the genetic code, one mutation is considered, what, what one change, one single character change is considered a mutation, and that they've studied 13,000 out of 100,000 individual viruses. This is still considered to be a slow rate of mutation, okay? And mm-hmm. this is compared to all other viruses that have been studied historically. Mm-hmm. And with those 13,000 changes out of 100,000 viruses, they're still considered to be part of a single COVID family. It's still within the family. Now, whether any of these changes alter the function of the virus is still not known, but it's being intensely studied. As an example, one mutation of the COVID-19 virus that has been talked about a lot is the change in the spike protein. That's the protein that gives the coronavirus its crown-like appearance. They know that there's been a mutation there. It's still not known if this mutation has any impact on transmission of the virus, on the severity of the disease, or, as importantly, on the effectiveness of a potential vaccine. Hmm. So these, again, we can mix facts with speculation because we don't know where this is really going to go. It's great to have understood 
as much as I've been able to share with you. Unfortunately, we don't know the outcomes of all these. I've made statements that are really more questions and mm-hmm, statements. Mm-hmm. We don't know the outcome of that. How many mutations does it take to change the character of the virus so that it's either more or less virulent? Right. None of this implies that the virus is more dangerous. Right. Okay, there's, there's no information on that at this time. Many of the changes can make it a weaker virus. But what I find fascinating as you think about, you know, that one change is a mutation. Yeah. And we know, and there's 20,000. Yeah, and that's a technical definition, but it's true. All right. So we know that there have been changes. I mean, it's already been said by science that there have been changes since it was discovered. Mm -hmm. So we don't know exactly how many changes, how many mutations. But yet the vaccine that they're working on in labs was geared towards the beginning of Mm COVID-19, you know, that sample Mm -hmm. that was pulled. Mm -hmm. And so if it has mutated, let's just say 300 times Mm -hmm. out of 20,000, will the vaccine that they're working on be as effective or not. We don't know that, certainly. Right. So as we take the vaccine, as people roll up their sleeves mm-hmm. and say, go ahead and mm-hmm. vaccinate me, mm-hmm. the odds are probably not that great that, in fact, I've even heard some science um, speculate at this point that uh, less than 50% mm-hmm. of the people who get the vaccine will have any effect at all. Well, let's, let's look at our most uh, convenient comparison. Mm. the annual flu vaccine. Sure, sure. Uh, Right about now, well, not right about now, but every year it varies as to how effective it is. Also, we've evolved to the point where one vaccine contains approximately four, is able to fight against four different versions of the virus, Mm -hmm. four different strains of the virus. Mm -hmm. So we know that much about the flu vaccine, that it's changing enough so that the character of the vaccine, that we need more than one type of medication to be able to affect four different kinds of viruses. Mm -hmm. We don't know, and and that we need to take it every year. We don't know where coronavirus is going to fit into that. It seems, and this is not a statement of of authority, but it seems less and less likely that one shot, one time is going to do it. Right. Um, But there's no way of knowing that for sure now, again, Mm -hmm. because what are we talking about? A shot of what? We still don't have the drug. We don't have it. And and I have done some reading where the likelihood is that it's... So you might have a flu vaccine that you would take, technically, mm-hmm. and then you would have a COVID-19 vaccine that you would take. So you might mm-hmm. end up taking several flu vaccines every year. Uh-huh. And how good is that going to be for a person's overall wellness? You know, that's the part that we really, I think, need to begin to, you know, ask ourselves. As you look in the mirror, as you get ready to go for your uh, annual physical or, you know, I don't have the answer. I think it's going to be done on an individual basis Mm -hmm. where you have to just look at your overall health Mm -hmm. and then speculate as to is this going to be more harmful or more beneficial Mm -hmm. for me to take it. But lining up to take multiple vaccines every year, for me, Uh doesn't appear to be something I would want to do. Right, right. Well, there's an interesting perspective there that you bring up, and that has to do with the risks of Mm -hmm. a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I guess it really applies to the risks of a new vaccine or any vaccine. And, you know, it's important to say that no medication or vaccine is completely free of risk. No, it isn't. Okay, no so medicine. This, right. Th- th- there's a reason for concern. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of perspective. Vaccines are unique, though, because they're given to patients that are mostly healthy people. Mm-hmm. Okay? So even though a vaccine might prevent a serious illness or death, there's a low tolerance for significant side effects to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the more effective a vaccine is, the less tolerance there is for side effects. Yeah, okay, so that statement alone, as, as we're kind of drawing to a conclusion uh-huh. with our program this morning, but that statement alone is a little bit scary because if most people are using it as a prevention mm-hmm. and they're getting it because they're mostly healthy, they mm-hmm. don't have a lot of underlying conditions, 
Then when you look at what we talked about before, that insurance companies know that their patients that are at risk right. are going to probably need this vaccine even more than the healthy person in order to prevent more loss financially to mm -hmm. the insurance companies, okay? So then you have a population that is by and large not as healthy taking a vaccine that we don't know what the outcome will be and potentially could have a lot more side effects. Yep. If I'm sitting in a boardroom, mm -hmm. that's quite the quandary mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as to do we give it to them because what if, what if they end up even getting sicker? That's, that's very likely, not very likely, it is possible that that could happen. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. We don't know so much. I mean, if we look at ourselves as individuals and try to think about how we assess whether we're going to get a vaccine or not, let's see where we stand in general, okay? <laughs> so a person feels fine. They don't have the virus. They get the vaccine, and you continue to feel fine. No side effects, no disease. Great. Or... You feel fine, you don't have the virus, you get the vaccine, you don't get the infection, but you do experience some of the side effects. Right. It's the side effects you remember. Right. You know, and that, that minor, generally, generally side effects are minor. Pain and swelling where it's been Headaches, injected. Yeah. You get some muscle aches. Mm -hmm. uh, with, in the case of the flu virus, you sometimes get a temporary increase in body temperature. Mm -hmm. But that, those are the things that people think about mm -hmm. when it comes to you know, what, what's my individual risk. Right. My mom used to take uh, the flu vaccine when she mm -hmm. was in, I think, her early 80s. And she would get so sick. And they finally figured out that she was allergic to the eggs that they yep. used as part of the vaccine. And yeah. they said, you shouldn't take it yeah. anymore. Yeah. And they developed an egg-free mm -hmm. version of it now. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Wow. So many points, so many things to think about as we approach a vaccine that's not on the market yet, that may or may not be beneficial, that may or may not give you side effects, mm -hmm. and may or may not work. Mm -hmm. Um, boy, this is going to boil down yeah. to a individual decision mm -hmm. that people are going to make. Yeah. And um, good luck to everybody, yeah. I guess. Um, why don't you tell people, as we come to a conclusion here, how they can reach you uh, mm -hmm. one more time. Sure. So that um, if somebody wants to talk to you about medication mm -hmm. management... Um, because you can do this now virtually, Absolutely. so yep. it makes it a lot easier. Somebody mm -hmm. in Canada can call yep. you and say, That's I right. need your help. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Uh, first of all, my name is Arthur Wernick, so my easiest way to reach me is by email or telephone. My email is my name, one word, A-R-T-H-U-R-W-E-R-N-I-C-K at gmail.com. I can be reached by phone. 727-451-9343. I am willing to talk to anybody, particularly people that already have a need that want to help prevent from getting sicker. The message I want to send to people mostly is that if you're currently needing health care, please try to get your health care. Try to continue with the health care that you've been on before the virus occurred. Try to get to your doctor's appointment safely. Try to follow as many guidelines as you can to prevent the chances of contracting the disease. Try to coordinate your medications with your pharmacy so that you have to make less trips to the pharmacy. But please continue to try to get your health care in the safest and best way you can. That's one problem I've seen, mm -hmm. is that people are not able to get the health care that normally do. The people that need to go to the doctor every month or every three months or every six months. Please continue to get your health care in the best way that you can. All right. Well, um, I have heard that that is an issue, an ongoing issue. So thank you again for being part of the show today. Um, I'm so excited that we're up on uh, Spotify. We're on Apple iTunes. We're on Google and soon to be on iHeartRadio. And so um, please, those that have listened to the show today, share this show with your family and friends. I think Arthur brings a beautiful and wonderful message to all of us as we're going through these difficult times. Um, you can also access older shows on SynergyConnectionRadio.com. 
I have over 100 shows that are archived there, and Arthur did some of those shows with me. So uh, go out there and please make this your best life. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Boomers Forever Young is really making a name for themselves as an exciting nutritional company with products that really work. People from all over the country are starting to take notice. Their whole person approach to health and wellness, combined with their unique array of powerful natural health products, are setting them apart from all the other companies in the nutrition industry. Their customers love the one-on-one free consultations and the results they experience. Sound a little too good to be true? Then go online to boomerboost.com today and sign up for a free consultation with a product specialist or just give us a call at 1-800-861-4609. Again, that's boomerboost.com or call 1-800-861-4609 to join the thousands already experiencing the benefits of Boomers Forever Young products.